Now, please stand and hear the word of the Lord. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name's Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning, we uh, will look, we will conclude our series in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible, um, as it recalls um, the events um, that we know typically um, as Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6. And specifically, um, it's the main point of the message today is that um, faithfulness enables us to stand strong in a chaotic world. Faithfulness enables us to stand strong in a chaotic world. There are three marks of faithfulness in this passage that we're going to see. The first mark of faithfulness is longevity. Second is consistency. And the third is doxology. <clears throat> first, longevity. So we've been traveling through Daniel's book. Um, Daniel, um, if you want to study it in your own time, Daniel uh, has a total of 12 chapters, um, and, uh, but we're not going to, for a variety of reasons, study um, chapters 7 through 12, though I would encourage you to do it. I mean, Daniel chapter 7 is probably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. Our Lord Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man more times than any other title, and that comes from Daniel chapter 7, and so Daniel's influence is... Um, very important, and, um, and so I would encourage you to study it, but for a variety of reasons, we'll stop here. But um, the course of Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter 6 is about 70 years. Um, Daniel is an old man by this period of time. He's about 85 years old, and in Daniel chapter 1, you know, he was a, he was a teenager. You know, he's a, a middle school, high school student, uh, and time has gone on, and it is and Daniel has witnessed, he's witnessed all kinds of things in his life. He's witnessed the rise of empires. He's witnessed the fall of empires. He's witnessed his own people being um, judged for their sins that the prophets had promised for so long. I mean, it, it was enacted in Daniel's day. And Daniel, Daniel character-wise, he's not a perfect man, but Daniel's probably the best man in the Old Testament. I mean, there's is with regards to the way the man lived his life, he just doesn't have very many rivals other than maybe Joseph in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm just saying that with regards to his Christian faith, he was consistent and, and he was faithful. And specifically, there's a, there's a longevity to the way the guy does things, specifically how he does his work. Like, in Daniel chapter 1 that Pastor Sam preached, I mean, you, you see that, that even as a young man, he's concerned about doing things in, in, in an honorable way. He, he's, he's committed to his Christian faith. He knows who he is. And yet he is also concerned about um, handling his new emperor or his new king in a way that's respectful to him. He doesn't eat of food that would dishonor his commitments, but at the same time, he, he is still respectful in how he how he refuses to do that, and he provides an alternative. 
Daniel chapter 2 that Pastor Bobby preached, you see that Daniel is given the opportunity to provide an interpretation to dreams, and, and he does so, and he brings clarity to, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar on what was going to happen after him. Also in Daniel chapter 4 and in Daniel chapter 5 that Pastor Jonah preached, you see that Daniel um, is, is known, I mean, he's known for being a man who's marked by wisdom and a man who's marked by integrity, and people were willing to hear what he had to say. He did his work well, and it provided him other opportunities. Now, Daniel doesn't do his work as a young man in such a way that he's like, I'm going to work real hard so that I can get the nice, cushy government job so that I can just coast for the rest of my life and collect a nice pension when I die, you know, not when I die. Getting a pension when you die won't help you. But uh, before you die, sorry about that. <laughs> maybe, maybe your government job's so bad you wish you died and you don't care about the pension. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, but uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't do things that way. No, you see here that regardless of who is in power, Daniel does his work well. Look here with me in verses 1 through 3. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over him, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He's in his 80s. And he still goes to work. And he still does his work well. He does his work regardless of who's in power, whether it was the Babylonians or whether it was the Persians. It's not as if that he, he worked in such a way that you could say, well, he, he slacked off. Like when it was the Babylonians and they were in power and they were very powerful, he worked real hard to try to impress them. But then as time went on, you know, and you get to chapter 5 when the, the kingdom's getting ready to fall, it's not as if he, he slacks off. And then when the new people come in power, then he, he, he amps it back up or he says, ah, you know, I've been through this before. There's always changes in leadership. I'm just going to take it easy. No. He does his work well. And you see that he does it well over the long course of time. There's a longevity to the way that the man does things. Work is important to Daniel. Not because it's going to get him anywhere. Daniel's not like a lot of the other people in the Old Testament. You can't look at Daniel's life and say, wow, look at what he accomplished. Like you can't look at his life like you would Moses and to say, Moses led God's people out of bondage and slavery. That's a significant accomplishment, isn't it? Yeah. You can't look at his life and, and look at it like, like David, like, oh, look, this man was so passionate about the Lord and concerned about God that God would have a temple, that God would have a place to dwell, that God made a covenant with him. You can't look at him like David's son Solomon's to say he built the house of the Lord. Daniel doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't have this, like, unbelievable accomplishment. It's not like this outward monument he goes to work. He does his work well. Why? Well, work's important. 
What is the reason that it's important? Well, work is important because God says that work is important. In Genesis chapter 2, before the temptation and the fall of Adam and Eve, God gives Adam and Eve work. He says, he says to Adam, this is a garden that's set aside for you, and you will tend to it, and you will keep it. He gives them work before sin. Why? Well, because work's important to God. And Daniel's life is reflective of God's values. He does his work, and he does his work well, because it's important. Though, in Daniel's life, there were all kinds of urgent and chaotic things going on all the time. Like you've got to think about this. Like Daniel, as a young man, would have witnessed, would have witnessed all the promises of God falling on his people for them to be judged for all their sins. Like you would think that he has a lot going on at the time, so he doesn't need to really worry about work. Daniel is working for a murderous king in chapter one. You think he would have a lot going on. And yeah, I guess you would say, well, he's going to work there so that he, you know, he saves his own skin. But that guy goes, and he's still doing it well. I mean, he witnesses his own friends get thrown into the fire. Like, I understand that we are all dealing with chaotic moments in life, and we are all dealing with things that are urgent. But the, it just seems to me that what this guy went through and witnessing all kinds of rises and falls of kingdoms and, and seeing threats to his life on a regular basis on the life of his friends. It just seems like it's really chaotic and there's all kinds of urgent things. And yet he still does not always what's urgent, but what's important. As a Christian, there's going to be times in your life, I want you to know, there will be times in your life where the urgent is what's most important, or the urgent is all you can focus on. There's going to be times in your life where it's going to be so chaotic that you don't need to worry about your 10-year plan. You don't need to worry about your five-year plan. You may not even need to worry about a one-year plan. All you can do is focus on the next, the next six months or the next three months, or maybe if life is especially devastating, all you can do is focus on the next few hours. Maybe you're dealing with sickness and you've got children at home. And all you can focus on is the next few hours and how to get through this day. Maybe you lose your job and you can't think to yourself, well, what about the next 10 years? You've got to think to yourself, I've got to get in enough resumes, enough applications so that I can start generating income so I can keep paying my bills. There's going to be times in your life where things are so urgent and things are so chaotic that you are focused on the immediate and you have to be. And that's okay. But at the same time, as a Christian, what it means to be faithful is you take the long view. And there are things in your life that are important, but they're not urgent. And you can't let the urgent, you can't let the immediate, you can't let the chaotic moment dictate everything. We're Christians. This world is broken. It's marked by sin. It's marked by suffering. There's always going to be chaos. There's never going to be a time in this life where it's just going to be all peaceful and rosy. I long for that. I try to set that up for myself, and it always ends up being disappointing. Because this world is marked by sin. And there's always going to be something urgent. 
And at times, the urgent is not really that important. Let me ask you, what's important to you? How do you answer that question? What is important to you? And do you give your time to it? Do you invest in what is important? Or do you only give yourself to what is urgent? There are times in your life where you have to give yourself to the urgent. But do you neglect the important for the urgent? Let's take it with regards to work. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're a supervisor. Maybe you are in some position of leadership and work. Do you invest in the important things? Like investing in other people is an important thing, but it's not always urgent. Like it's not always urgent to invest and to develop other people, but it is important. And, and it is something that will enable you to, to, to benefit things in the long run. Like what about your relationships, your relationships at home? At times, your marriage is important. I assume if you're married that if I ask the question, what is important to you, you would say, well, my marriage. And so then the question is, is if it's important, are you investing in it? Or are you just getting tied up in the urgent? It can be any one of your relationships, your marriage, your friendships, your children, your coworkers, your neighbors, whatever it is. What is important to you? And what do you do with the urgent? Is it all urgency all the time? Something else we learn from this passage. We learn how God works. And God works slowly. God works slowly according to us. Not according to Him. Okay? And truthfully, we're not the best... We're not the best assessors of time and we're not always the best assessors of what's going on around us i mean earlier in the first service i was standing over there by the baptistry here's an example of how i'm not a good assessor of my immediate environment is i seen the bass i seen a bass guitar in that baptistry and i assumed that it had water in it and i was like they're never going to be able to use that bass guitar again why did they you know why did they put that in a big thing of water it didn't have water in it okay i had to look at it a second time my point is, is that I'm not necessarily the best judge and assessor of what's immediately going on around me. And how would I, how would I be the best judge, judge or assessor of, of what God's doing in my life at what period of time? Like God works slowly according to us, but it's always on time according to him. You know, it says in Psalm 23, famous psalm, the shepherd psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, it says towards the end, and this hit me once as I was, I was walking along a path and was going through that scripture. And it says, surely mercy and goodness shall follow me all the days of my life. And, it, and I realized as I kind of looked back down the path, that, that means for David in some way, he was envisioning that he was farther down the path, so to speak, than God was. But you know what? Because of God's faithfulness over time, he catches up to David. And when he catches up to David, we're speaking about God in you know, baby talk, so to speak. When, he, when God catches up to where David's at, what does he do? He brings goodness and mercy with him. God works slowly. It takes time. It takes time for God to work out things in your life. It takes time for 
problems to be sorted out. It takes time for relationships to be developed. It takes time for relationships to become meaningful. It just takes time. And one of the things it means to be people of faithfulness is that we trust that over time, God is going to do good, even if the moment is chaotic and difficult. Second, consistency. So David, or excuse me, Daniel um, is a guy who does his work really well. And, and Darius, um, the king, recognizes that. And there's going to be times in your life that you being a Christian and being a consistent Christian means that people are going to see that and they're going to be glad about it. It'll say in Proverbs 22, verse 29, if you see a man skillful in his work, he will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And what that means is, is if you do your work well, it will provide other opportunities for you to do your work in other occasions, maybe before powerful people. And that's what happens in Daniel's life, right? He does his work well, and it provides him more opportunities. And some people are happy about it, and some people want to kill him. Look here with me in verses 4 and 5. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it is something to do with the law of his God. There's a consistency to him. There's, a, there's such a consistency that it, there, he was not corrupt or negligent. Like you couldn't say it's like, well, you know, Daniel doesn't turn his paperwork in on time or something like that. It's like the one thing you got on the guy is something he does not do. And they didn't even have that. In fact, he lived such a consistent Christian life the people who wanted him dead said, we're going to have to figure out how his Christian convictions can eventually lead to his own death. So they approach the king. They say to the king, hey, we think that nobody should pray to any other god or person other than you, king. The king says, that sounds like a good idea. And we think the consequences of somebody praying, and let's keep that in mind, it's prayer. Doesn't seem like a threatening Christian act, okay? That if anybody prays to anyone other than you, they will be thrown into a den of lions and the king said, let's make that policy. Let's make that the law. That's the way it's going to be. And then we see verse 10. Look here with me. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. He hears that it is now illegal for him to say thank you to God. 
And so he goes home, and he gets down on his knees, and he tells God, thank you. For Daniel, yesterday was a good day to say thanks to God. And yesterday it was legal. Today is a good day to say thanks be to God. And now it is illegal. Did you notice there that with it, it's not even as if the times, you know, there's a, there's a type of Christianity that I sometimes call crisis Christianity, to where somebody maybe has some sort of confession of Christianity. Um, they, they have some sort of Christianity that they kind of acknowledge, but it's when things are easy, so to speak, they're fine. But then if things go chaotic in their life, there's sickness or there's whatever, there's, there's some job loss, there's things that are going on in their life that are difficult, they all of a sudden become concerned about spiritual things, a kind of a crisis Christianity. And there's a kind of a comfortable Christianity, which is I'm going to serve the Lord so long as it's good for me and it makes me comfortable. And then when things get hard, I'm going to go away from the Lord. And Daniel has neither comfortable Christianity nor crisis Christianity. He's not, you know, he's not being contrary and saying, well, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so then he goes and prays. And at the same time, he's not like a compromised Christian where he's saying, well, you know, we've got a lot going on. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, confusing right now and messy. You know, the, the, you know, he doesn't try to theologize it and say, well, God already knows what I want, what I need before I ask it, so I'm not going to even pray. Like he doesn't try to make it a, a theological debate. What he did yesterday is what he does today. And then... He gets him arrested and brought before the king. <clears throat> Whenever I was, uh, when I graduated from high school, I took a job at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And uh, my life was very chaotic at that time. Um, it was marked by a lot of depression, a lot of grief, a lot of loss, death, a close member of the family die. Um, and it was a very difficult time in my life. And the only thing that was consistent in my life was the inconsistency um, until I got this job, and then it was pretty consistent that I was pretty consistent that I was busy at work. And that was because I had a supervisor named Gary, and he was a consistent supervisor. You always knew what you were getting into him. He always wanted his employees to be busy. And so whenever he would show up, <laughs> we were I was on the I was a custodian and on the moving crew. So you needed to be cleaning something or moving something. That was basically, and so if you were busy, he was consistently saying, hey, thank you. Thank you for doing your work. And if you weren't busy, he always asked a question. What are you doing right now? It was, it was always how he, he invited you into the process of your future discipline, <laughs> so to speak. And, and, but you know what? I was fine with it. Like you knew what you were getting into with the guy. And Gary was a Christian. I was not a Christian at the time. And Gary, he would, he was, I think he was consistent with his Christianity. Like myself and one of my buddies, we, we talked a lot about life and philosophy and religion and things like that. And we would talk to Gary about it at times. And guess what? Gary always did three things consistently. One, he always listened to us. Two, he was always respectful. And three, he always expressed his Christian convictions. He always did those three things. It was never one of those that even with, with that man that he would say, like, we would bring up some 
random thing that we were thinking. And he was like, well, yeah, I could see that. He, I don't think I ever heard him say I could see that. He says, well, this is what I believe. My buddy was talking to him about prayer once. I wasn't involved in this discussion. Now, my buddy, my buddy utilized a lot of illegal substances. So how much was theological and how much was chemical wasn't always easy to determine with regards to discussions about life and prayer. So, uh, and so he was talking out his mind in some way, and he was talking to Gary about it. And this, I remember Gary distinctly saying, well, can I talk to you about what it's like to pray in the name of Jesus? And we talked to him about that. He didn't convince him anything. He didn't convince me of anything. The only thing I started to be convinced of was, well, Gary believes this stuff. One time in particular, one of the rules was if you were, on, if you were working together, you couldn't date. And so if you started dating, you had to go to another crew. And some of my coworkers started dating. Gary found out about it, being consistent as he was. He approached him, said, hey, you know, you guys, I'm not going to tell you guys what to do with your life, but you guys can't do this here. We're going to have to, you're going to have to go to another crew. And those people went to his supervisors and told lies about him. One, they said they weren't dating, which wasn't true. And two, they said they, he mistreated them, which also wasn't true. I, that day had parked next to him, and I heard about he was getting pulled into his superior's office. And I waited on him, and he came out, and he was, his eyes were filled with tears. And um, he talked to me a little bit about what happened, and you know, they just told lies. They just made things up. I mean, it was just all kinds of things. And, and I was angry for him. He wasn't angry about it. I mean, he was tearful about what all was said because his, his supervisors and his equals didn't like him and as best as I could gather and I was an outside party it was because he was a Christian and he was consistent with it and I remember saying to him like this isn't right like you shouldn't be treated like this like you're a good man and then he started quoting passages in the Bible about being persecuted for righteousness sake I had no idea what he was talking about other than to say he believes that if he's mistreated for his Christian beliefs, that it was a good thing. And it was evidence that he was following his Lord Jesus. And I could not make sense of anything he was talking about. But what I did make sense of was Gary believed this stuff. He was at least consistent with this whole Christianity thing. Consistency is always going to cost you something. Consistent Christianity is always going to cost you something. You know, if you're, going to be, if you're going to be consistent and you're going to follow, follow the directions of, of your parents, let's say. Let's say you're still in your parents' care. It, it's going to cost you freedom. Like, if you're going to be a consistent spouse, it's going to cost you freedom. It's going to, it's going to cost you, um, it's going to cost you, you know, having things that you want for the sake of, of the benefit of your marriage and your home. Like, to be a Christian is always going to cost you something. At times, it's going to cost you your popularity. Like, here's a man who is loved and hated for being a Christian. Consistent Christianity always ends up costing us something. 
Maybe not today. Okay? Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's, but maybe it's 10 years from now. But what you don't see out of Daniel is you don't see him saying, well, yesterday it was easy to follow Jesus, and today it's hard, so I'm going to change what I'm doing. His immediate circumstances doesn't dictate how he serves the Lord, but how he serves the Lord dictates what he does in his immediate circumstances. So if yesterday was a good day to say thanks be to God, then today is a good day to say thanks be to God, whether it is acceptable or, for that matter, even legal. Let me ask you, what did you do yesterday in the name of the Lord? And what you did yesterday, is it anything like you're going to do today? At one level it may not be, well, today is Sunday and we gather into worship. Well, what did you do last year in the name of the Lord? And is it consistent with what you're going to do this year in the name of the Lord? Like, what did you do last week in the name of the Lord? And is it consistent with what you're going to do this week in the name of the Lord? And then, for that matter, does your Christianity ever cost you anything? Like a Christianity that doesn't cost you. There's no real Christianity at all. If all you get from your Christianity is comfort and ease, and it just doesn't match what we see in the Scriptures. Promise, promises from Scriptures, examples from Scriptures. This is a good man, and they wanted him dead. Our Lord Jesus is the only perfect man in the past and ever, and he it cost him a lot. And faithfulness will have a degree of consistency. And then third, faithfulness will be marked by doxology. So you have Daniel is now before the king. The king throws him into the lion's den and the king is sick because he has just thrown his best man the man he was getting ready to entrust his entire kingdom to into a den full of lions. And the king, before he throws him in there, says, I hope that your God can save you. And he spoke better than he knew. And so this is what happens. He gets up early, early in the morning, and we have this in verse 21. He calls out to Daniel, and Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in your sight, and nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. <laughs> you, see, you see the consistency out of this man. Like This man, regardless of who what king is in power, regardless of what they just did to him, speaks to them with respect. He calls him your majesty. He, he says a prayer, may you live forever. And he says, I, they haven't even touched me. The, the lions haven't even, they haven't even scratched at me. They haven't even pawed at me. I've got absolutely nothing on me. There are no wounds whatsoever. And then in the next verse, in verse 23, it says, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And Daniel was lifted from the den and no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. 
Faith is trusting that God can do something for you that you can't do for yourself. And, and Daniel couldn't, I mean, regardless of, of how gifted or smart or, or strategic or strong or whatever, he can't stop the mouth of lions. And so God does for him something that he can't do for himself. God personally gets involved there. It says that God sent his angel, which is another word for messenger, which is our Lord Jesus Christ before he was born of the Virgin Mary. The Lord Jesus himself personally comes, brings his presence, and does something for Daniel. Daniel can't do for himself because Daniel believed. And the king hears this. He is overjoyed. And, and in the book of Daniel, I said this before the service start, started to the musicians as we were together. I said it it bothers me on multiple levels that, that some of the most powerful moments of praise in all of the Bible come from the mouth of these pagan kings. Like, just over and over and over in chapter 2 and in chapter 4 and here in chapter 6, we have this moment of praise. Look here with me in verses 26 and 27. Darius says, For he is the living God and endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Daniel suffers for a period of time and it gives way to praise. But it was the praise of somebody else. I mentioned the man I worked for named Gary. Shortly after those events that I was telling you about where him and I talked at his car, I witnessed him. He took a phone call. Work was getting ready to start that day. And it was the young lady who lied about him. She was calling in sick to work. And he could tell she was upset and she had been crying. And he asked her if she was okay. And she told about how her boyfriend had broke up with her. Now you got to remember, this was the couple that got him in trouble in, in this escalated a series of events to where Gary eventually stepped down as my supervisor and he, he took a demotion and he went back to being a custodian. And he told her, he said, I'm concerned about you and I'm praying for you and I'm going to call you later and check on you to make sure you're okay. And as best as I can gather, that was what he did. And I, again, had no idea what it was that I was seeing. What I started to conclude was this, is that this Jesus that Gary talks about, maybe he can bring some order to my chaotic life. And so I started reading the Bible. And after a series of events, I come to believe and to call the God that, G that, that Gary talked about, and his name is Jesus, that he is God. And he's a king who can bring order into my world. Christian, I don't know what you're going through. And there's going to be times in your life that, that the chaotic moments and the difficult moments, it's going to be evident what God's doing in them. Okay? There's going to be times where, you know, it, whatever. You, there's going to be times where it's like, you know, what's God doing in your life? He's, he's developing patience in me. What's God doing in your life? He is making me a more loving person. What's God doing in your life? Well, he's provided for me um, a child. Whatever it is, there's going to be times where you are going through difficulties, challenges, and it's going to be evident God is doing something specific. 
but your faith will be tested at times and there will be no apparent evidence of why you go through that and what you're going through may not be for your immediate benefit. But it might be for somebody else. It might not be so that you say thanks be to God, but it might be that, that someone you don't know. It might be that somebody's on the outside watching you and your faith so that they one day will say thanks be to God. Like I know that from my own personal life. That man suffered so that I would one day say thanks be to God. Daniel suffered so that Darius and others can say thanks be to God. And we're Christians. Jesus suffered so that we all could say, thanks be to God. I mean, that's what we see in the Word, and that is what's evident in the Lord's Supper. You see, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and he broke it, and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes a cup of wine, and after giving thanks, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Take, drink of it. Do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat from this bread and you drink from this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Until he returns and establishes a kingdom that will never end. If you're a Christian, I invite you. After I get done praying and the musicians begin playing, there will be stations throughout the auditorium. Our tradition is to come, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in juice or wine, whichever one you prefer. The wine will be marked by a piece of twine. And there will be gluten-free elements to my left and to your right if that serves you well. Christians, please come and participate. If you're not a Christian, I would ask you to please don't participate in this. Please respect our tradition. But I pray that you will take Jesus... I pray that you'll see Jesus as a God who can bring peace and order to your chaotic life and to bring you into God's family forever. So please trust in Jesus and we can prepare you for communion in the future. Let's pray together.